0: We'll be reading the first verse of Micah, all of chapter 6, and the second half of chapter 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Azar, and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people, he is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal and uh, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked, wicked house, your ill gotten treasures, and the short ephah uh, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales? With a bag of false weights, her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision, and you will bear the scorn of the nations. Jumping to verse 14 of chapter 7. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power, they will lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears will become death. they will lick dust like a snake like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago.
1: Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to have the word of God open before us. And I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study. Father, we are thankful this morning for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you have uh, allowed us an opportunity once again this morning to gather together as your people to open your word. And Father, as the psalmist declared, uh, I pray too that we would, as we open your word, that Lord, you would reveal to us these wonderful things found in this book. And Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning, would teach us what you would have us to know and Father, even as we've been here these last several weeks in the Old Testament minor prophets, Lord, I pray this morning that you would show us the Messiah, show us the Christ, that we might become more like him in increasing measure. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the minor prophets. And week one, we, we talked about uh, Joel. We were in the book of Joel, and we focused upon the Day of the Locusts. You might remember that, Day of the Locusts and the, the Day of Judgment, and it was pointing toward that Day of the Lord, and the question that was posed there, who can endure this Day of the Lord? And that from that Day of the Lord, then, there was this call to think and consider about the Day of Repentance. And the Lord says, to turn your whole heart toward me. And then he comes back and talks once again about this day of the Lord. And he reminds his people that he himself is a shelter. He himself is the strength for his people in that day of trouble. Week two, we covered Nahum. And Nahum was a message of destruction with a small, what we called a chorus of hope tucked in. Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good. We saw also that the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And we saw that the Lord knows those who trust in Him. And then last week, we were able to uh, walk through the book of Habakkuk. And we saw in Habakkuk that the just shall live by his faith. In chapter 1, we see Habakkuk is worrying and he's feeling the weight of his circumstances. The Babylonians are coming and he was feeling that. In chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see Habakkuk waiting and he's watching for the Lord to answer. He's expecting the Lord to speak. And oh, how instructive it is for us that we too would expect the Lord to speak. And even yet this morning, as we have his word open before us, that we would expect the Lord to speak through his spirit today. In chapter 3, we saw of Habakkuk this change from chapter 1, that the worry was changed to worship. And the weight of his circumstances was changed now to the weight of giving glory to the Lord. And he was waiting upon the Lord and looking to the Lord. Rejoicing in this great God of his salvation. Today I'd like to introduce you to the prophet Micah. Micah, another small town prophet... In fact, chapter 1, verse 1, it's one of the reasons I desired Kevin to read that verse this morning. There are many pieces of information that are very helpful pieces of information for this book of Micah. Micah is from the town of Moresheth, which is located some 20 to 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Right on the border of Judah and Philistia, near the Philistine city of Gath. Micah is prophesying during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's also found right there in chapter 1, verse 1. Gives us some context in which the prophet Micah is speaking. This time frame also corresponds to Pekah and Hosea who were kings of Israel during this time. Those were the last two kings of Israel before their downfall. And we see that Micah is somewhat unique in that he is prophesying concerning both Samaria and Jerusalem. That's what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. This is a vision that he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, so he's prophesying to both. Predominantly, as we read through the book, I think what you find is that it's primarily toward that of, uh, of Judah... But nevertheless, he has word here as well for Samaria. It also gives us great context for us to understand that he's writing prior to the destruction of Samaria. Okay, when the Assyrians in 722 on the timeline of history, when the Assyrians overthrew Samaria. Okay, so that's the context in terms of thinking through where Micah is at on that timeline of history. And so from last week, we're going to go backward from where we were. Habakkuk, remember, during the days, he was prophesying during the days of Jehoiakim from about 609 to 598 BC. And Micah is a contemporary with Hosea. And Isaiah. In fact, there are some uh, writers that uh, see Micah in many ways as a miniature Isaiah because of the the many parallels. Uh, There are several parallels. If you look at Micah and you look at Isaiah and you'll see almost verbatim words used by Isaiah and Micah. And so some call him a miniature Isaiah in some regards. So Micah has several things and he's serving alongside of a contemporary with Isaiah. And so... These markers, as we look at Micah and we look at the context and we look at the history, to give you a frame, maybe 735, 740 B.C. to about 710, 700 B.C. Somewhere in that frame is right there where we'll put Micah in terms of his prophecy. Within the scope of his days as a prophet... The Assyrians are in control. They're the world power. And as we said, 722, the Assyrians under Sargon II, he comes, he destroys Israel, the northern tribes. And then in 701, you might recall the Assyrians under Sennacherib at that point attempt to destroy Jerusalem. But you might also remember that they are not successful. Praise God. God spares his people in Jerusalem and sends an angel And wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. He intervenes through, at the time, a very godly king named Hezekiah. So in light of Micah's context. And the evils to which it speaks. It seems likely that he's writing prior to many of the reforms of Hezekiah. We, We read about Hezekiah and we see the many reforms that took place during his days. You read Micah and you see... Still several things that aren't right leads us to believe as we picture that time frame, we look at the context, much of what Micah is dealing with and writing about would be prior to those reforms of Hezekiah. Micah is speaking of social injustice. He's speaking of corrupt business practices. He's speaking of perverse leadership. Judges and priests and heads of household, they're operating unjustly. He speaks of the Lord's judgment to come on the enemy nations. But he also speaks of judgment to come upon his own people. He also sets forth promises. He sets forth blessings to those who look to the Lord for their strength. And he condemns the practices of God's own people and rebukes the rulers in chapter 3. That's one of the things he does primarily right there in chapter 3. Rebuking the rulers, those who are leading And he speaks of a day, this is wonderful to see in the book of Micah. He speaks of a day when out of little Bethlehem, Ephrathah, there shall come forth a ruler in Israel who will stand and feed his flock in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Micah is the prophet who prophesies where this Christ child is going to come from. ...in the town of Bethlehem. And after speaking about this ruler to come... ...he speaks of how the Lord will judge the enemies of God's people. That's the end of chapter 5. And so then once you arrive at Micah chapter 6... ...you find yourself in the third section, if you will, of Micah's prophecy. If we were to just put sections on Micah... ...Micah chapter 1 and 2... It begins this way. And the key word I'd like you to understand this morning as we think about the sections of Micah and where we're at in Micah 6. Chapters 1 and 2 begin this way. Hear, all you peoples. Verse 2, chapter 1. Micah chapter 3. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob. Then we get to chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. There's a key word here that I'd like you to understand. And that's hear. Hear. That's what's separating these three sections of the book of Micah. Hear now what the Lord says. Hearing with intent to obey. Some of us do a fairly decent job of hearing. We can hear what people say. Some of us don't do such a nice job of obeying what we hear. Right? I know some of you... Uh, perhaps that's hard to hear that some of you don't obey what you hear especially some of the younger folks but I I think it's important that you understand that what Micah is prophesying what Micah is talking about this morning this idea of hearing he is relaying to us some information about God's people God's people have not heard they've had this pattern throughout history of not hearing they've not obeyed the Lord God And right here at the beginning of chapter 6, hear now what the Lord says. In fact, if we were to look, and just in terms of a pattern of history, if you have your Bible and you turn to 2 Kings for just a moment, this gives you a good snapshot, I believe, of an example of a pattern in history where God's people did not hear. Chapter 17, 2 Kings, beginning in verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from Watchtower, the fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and every every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger for they served idols. Of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets. We're in one of the prophets today. Every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes. And his covenant that he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he had testified against them. Listen, they followed idols, they became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And on and on and on. A pattern of not hearing, a pattern of not obeying what God had already spoken. The testimony of the scriptures is that Judah didn't hear either. They too followed the sins of Israel and they too reaped the consequences of not hearing, not obeying what the Lord had spoken. So tracking history, you see glimpses where the people of God heard and actually did the word of God. There are some examples of that. But the greater pattern seems to be a people who refuse to hear what the Lord has already spoken. As Paul concludes that, that 10th chapter of Romans, that picture is always stuck in my head of the Lord himself. And it's a vivid picture of the Lord's loving patience toward his own people. And at the end in Romans ten twenty one, it's actually a passage from Isaiah. And he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands... To a disobedient and contrary people. Picture that. All day long. I have stretched out my hands. To a disobedient and contrary people. How true is that still today? Those who are lost and without hope. Are going to live lives contrary to the Lord. But what about God's people? How is it that God's. People can be labeled disobedient and contrary. How is it that God's people are are people who refuse to hear what God has to say? How is it that God's people can live this brief life? It's It's a little blip. It's a brief life. We're missed. We're gone. How is it that God's people can live this brief life without much concern, it seems, over what God has to say? As children of God, it would be significant to hear what God has to say for our own personal benefit, no doubt about it, for the benefit of our households, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of the mission, the worldwide mission, being a witness, being in unity in Christ. See, Micah is calling our attention in chapter 6 to what the Lord has to say. Hear now what the Lord has to say. And I believe it's incumbent upon each one of us here this morning to sit up, to pay attention. Because here's what the Lord has to say. I want to know and I need to know what the Lord has to say. If you are a child of God, you too need to know what the Lord has to say. And as we hear what the Lord has to say, I pray that we would then walk in the way that he calls us to walk. And we'll get to that in verse 8. Because he's given to us a very specific way that we're to walk. Well, first of all, these first two verses, let's just um, let's separate the first two verses out by just looking. These are the, the Lord's summons. This is, what we're going to see is this big courtroom drama, essentially, in chapter 6. And when when there's a summons, you are being called. And that's what's happening right now. The Lord is summoning his people. Look look at the text. It says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaints. And you strong foundations of the earth... For the Lord has a complaint against his people. Do you hear that? He's got a complaint against his people. And he will contend with Israel. Now you might be wondering to yourself, as you read the text. Okay, arise, plead your case. What's, what are the mountains and the hills? What, what, is, what is that? According to the law, there was, there needed to be how many witnesses? At least two, right? So what we have before us in Micah's prophetic language, his poetic language. The mountains and the hills are witnesses. They're the witnesses. In this court of law. And the defendant is called to arise, to stand. And he's called to plead his case before the mountains and the hills. And these mountains are called to hear the Lord as well. For he has a complaint. He has a controversy. He has an indictment against his own people. He's about to contend with them. And you know, as I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about, uh, for us yet today, if, if the Lord were to summon you today for trial, bring you into his courtroom, what would he have against you today? He's about to lodge a complaint against his own people. Have you ever considered in the context of your own life, what kind of complaint he might have against you today any controversy going on right now between you and the Lord as we've studied the minor prophets this month there have been ample opportunities I believe to observe the character of God he is a holy God he's worthy to be praised and as such this is important any complaint that he has against his people is justified He is always holy, he is always righteous, he is always just. So if the Lord has a complaint against us, it should serve as notice to sit up and take notice. The king of kings is speaking. Hear now what the Lord says. His people are summoned to arise, to stand and plead their case. You know, I was thinking about that word, plead. Plead. Why are they to plead their case? Is the defendant's default stance to plead? The defendant is called upon to oftentimes state his case as to why he's innocent. What are you doing when you plead your case? We could insert some different words there. Beg. Beseech. Beseech. You see, it's, it's fitting for God's people to beg and plead their case when standing to speak before a holy God. The Lord summons, we arise. And the best we can do is plead our case before this holy God. listen, the only basis upon which we can stand before him is a righteousness that has been granted to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the only basis upon which we can stand. In fact, first John chapter two. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... If it does happen, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself, that's Jesus, he himself is the propitiation, he's the mercy seat for our sin. Jeremiah, who was prophesying of a day to come, he says this in Jeremiah 23, 6. He says, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So with the mountains and the hills serving as witnesses, the Lord summons his people to stand. He has some words for them. And church, I believe he has words for you this morning as well. Listen to what he has to say. As we get into verse 3, we see the Lord's testimony. The Lord summons. Now the Lord is going to give testimony. His testimony is right here in 3, 4, and 5. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Notice the Lord begins here, his testimony. He begins as he speaks. He begins with two questions. What have I done to you, my people? How have I wearied you? When you think about and consider those questions, what are some conclusions that you might draw out of those questions? Let me give you a couple. The people have been operating in ways contrary to the Lord. The people have forgotten who God is. You remember the word back in Deuteronomy? As the Lord was talking about the promised land and all the wonderful things, he says, beware. When you eat of, those, of all that, the food it's really not even yours, but I'm going to give them to you. When you eat and you're full, he says, Beware lest you forget who I am. Don't forget me. I believe here in the text too, we see that the people have seen the commandments. When he asks the question, how have I wearied you? You get the idea that the people have seen the commandments of God as burdensome. You know, 1 John's epistle in chapter 5, verse 3, says something quite the contrary, says that his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. The Lord then calls his people to testify against himself. Listen to this for a moment. Think about that for just a second. The Lord asks a few questions, implying that your life is being lived contrary to his ways. And then he calls you to share with him. Holy God, he's calling you to share with him how he's in the wrong in what he just said. Any takers on testifying against the Lord? Anybody up for that? the question that's put forth here in fact as I was thinking about that I was thinking about God's son Jesus in the gospels in John chapter 8 in John chapter 8 beginning in that verse that Jesus is speaking to the the Jewish people who did not believe and he says you are the father of the devil it was a passage that really kind of got him upset you're of your father the devil right he says the desires of your father you want to do He says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And then he says this. He asks this question. This is an incredible question. And it ties in to what the Lord himself is testifying right here. And the question Jesus asked back in his day was, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, Jesus says, because you're not of God. If you read John's Gospel in that eighth chapter, you'll note that the text doesn't mention anyone on that day convicting Jesus of any sin. He is the Godhead in the flesh. He is the express, as the Hebrew writer says, the express image of God the Father with skin and bones. He is God with us, He is Emmanuel. Of course they have nothing to say. Jesus is God's perfect son. Holy, righteous, just in all of his ways. So after the questions and the call to testify against him. The Lord then moves right into what he's done for them. Listen to this in verse 4 of Micah chapter 6. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you. You see, I think verse 4 helps us understand verse 3. The Lord's testimony is this. My people, I've never done anything against you. I've never wearied you by my presence. On the contrary, let me show you that I have been for you and not against you. Let me provide, in fact, some examples of how I have been a help to you. And so here, here are the examples right here, in verse 4. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. What's the Lord testifying here? I rescued you from the cruel hand of slavery in Egypt. You remember that? I purchased you out of the house of bondage, not because you were such a good people, but because you're mine. I redeemed you. Remember that day of atonement? Remember when the Lord passed over those homes that had the blood on the doorpost? You remember that? He's recounting history. He's recounting what he has done. No blood, no redemption. Reminds me of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood... The forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of his grace. You see, what happened back in Egypt was a great rescue. But it was also a foreshadowing of an even greater rescue yet to come when the spotless Lamb of God would come down to earth in the form of a man who would humble himself and become obedient to death on the cross, the perfect blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. So when we sing songs like, What can wash away my sins? It's true, friends, that nothing aside from the precious blood of Jesus can wash away your sins. When we sing redeemed by the blood of the lamb, it's true that the only way we become a child forevermore is through the blood of Jesus. We sing wonderful, merciful savior, precious redeemer and friend Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the soul of man? So we go back to Micah. The Lord testifies and says, I rescued you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the bondage that you were in. And I I even sent before you leaders to help you in your way. Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Some of them led better than others, perhaps. But God gave them leaders. Verse 5 then is a call for his people to remember. That's the key word in verse 5. Remember. Remember. What does the Lord want his people to remember? I believe three things he wants them to remember in verse 5. Remember what Balak king of Moab counseled. Remember what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And remember what took place between Acacia Grove... ...or another term for Acacia Grove would be Shittim... ...between Acacia Grove and Gilgal. And the point of all of this remembrance is given at the end of verse 5. There's a result or a purpose clause there. That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. <clears throat> remember that you might know the righteousness of the Lord... My people. It's as though the Lord is testifying and saying, remember these things that you might know who I am and how I have worked among you in the past. I have not changed. As you read this, you may be inclined to ask the question. I hope you ask the question as you read this. What did Balak, king of Moab, counsel? What was his counsel? And what did Balaam, son of Beor, answer? Maybe you need a brief remembrance of Balak and Balaam. Perhaps later today you can go back and read Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25. And you'll see a, a wonderful picture here, a wonderful story. Balak and Balaam. Balak, in short, is frightened over this people from Egypt... That has encamped next door to him. He's frightened. And he calls on Balaam, no doubt because he trusts in Balaam's word. The one that Balaam blesses is the one that gets blessed. The one who Balaam curses is the one who gets cursed. That's Balak's thought. I'm scared, I'm worried, I want Balaam to come and I want him to grant me a wish. Now, the king's counsel we see in that passage in Numbers on several occasions. It's probably summarized in chapter 22 of Numbers verse 6, right? It goes like this. He says, please come at once. Curse this people for me. For they are too mighty for me. Curse this people for me. That's the big message. That's the counsel of the king. So the Lord testifies... In Micah chapter 6, to remember Balak's counsel. That's his counsel. Curse this people, God's people. Curse them for me. What then is Balaam's answer? What we see in Numbers chapter 22, verse 38, a summary, example of his answer. Balaam says, "Have, have I any power at all to say anything? He says, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Whatever God puts in my mouth, that's what I'm going to speak, says Balaam. So the Lord here in Micah 6 testifies, calls us to remember Balaam's answer. So his answer, simply put, is this. I will only speak the words that God puts in my mouth. So why then would the Lord call his people to remember such an event from history? That should be the question we ask as we read the text. What's the point? I believe he's calling their attention to what Balak asked of Balaam, which was to curse the Lord's people. Balaam didn't do it. And so the Lord's steadfast love is such that he will never, there's a promise here, he will never forsake his people. He will never leave his people. You are mine, says the Lord. Remember. But there's one other remembrance, I believe, here in verse 5. It may to us seem like an odd remembrance in the way that it's worded. But it has to do with two locations, Acacia Grove and Gilgal. You might recall on the journey to the promised land, the final stop on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan, is a place called Acacia Grove. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. You can reference that. The first place on the other side of the Jordan was Gilgal. Let me ask you, church, what happened between Acacia Grove and Gilgal? The Jordan River stands between them. That's a little hint. You see, the people of God crossed the Jordan River. Remember, it seems as though the Lord is testifying here in verse 5. Remember how I faithfully took care of you. Remember how I allowed you to pass over to the other side. Remember the covenant renewal that took place during that time. Remember how you were mine, how you walked with me. Remember my people who I am. I am the Lord, your God. The text then shifts once we get to verse 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. We see, We've seen the Lord's summons. We've seen the Lord's testimony. And now we see the Lord's requirements. The Lord's requirements. Read verses 6 and 7. Text says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? As Micah continues the proceedings, he does so now from the perspective of the people. Questions abound right here as to how to come before such a holy, righteous, and just God. Notice the questions are centered on what to give the Lord... As though he's after some gift, some tangible expression, doing something that might please him. That seems to be the emphasis here in the questions. What can I offer to the Lord? What do I have to give to him? Burn offerings do it? Sacrificing animals, is that going to take care of it? Will the Lord be content with Thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil... ...the emphasis there seems to be on quantity... ...if I just give him enough stuff... ...maybe that'll work. What if I give him my firstborn for my transgression? What if I offered him my son for the sin of my soul? Is that what he's after? If, if, if I were to offer to the Lord... ...one of my most dearest earthly treasures... ...would, would that take care Of the Lord's anger against my sin. Notice that the people are grasping for things to bring before a holy God. Things that will atone for their acknowledged sinful ways. None of those things in verses 6 and 7 can atone for their sin. That's the point I believe Micah is making in the text. But then you arrive at that familiar verse in verse 8. We've heard verse 8. We might know songs about verse 8. But maybe we've not heard verse 8 in the context in which it sits in Scripture. Here's verse 8. First part. He has shown you or he has told you. O man, what is good? In other words... Why are you interrogating the Lord on what He's after? <laughs> Mike is saying, to the Lord. Why are you approaching this from a guessing standpoint? The Lord has already shown you, He's already spoken to you regarding what is good. The problem is, you haven't been listening, you haven't been obedient. To what the Lord has already told you. Church, this is not only true for God's people in Micah's day, it does still stand true today. Our questions might be different. We might ask different questions in verses six and seven, no doubt, more updated questions to fit our context of our culture. But we too are a people looking, grasping for ways to appease this holy God. We too might find ourselves looking for ways to appease a guilty conscience. If I just tithe more regularly. If I I just attended the Lord's house more often. If I just went on a few more short-term mission trips. If I just participated in a few more Bible studies. If I just led a couple more family worship times during the week, is that what you're after, Lord? Micah says, and what does the Lord require of you but to, here they are, do justly, love mercy, and to walk Humbly with your God. What does he require of you? Here are the Lord's requirements. Now some of us, I just said a side note, some of us don't like it when people tell us what we gotta do. We live in a culture today, they don't like people telling them what to do. And when they hear the Lord's requirements, they immediately, poof, put up that wall, perhaps. I would hope and pray ...that we would not view his requirements in such a way. In light of the fact we know who this God is... ...that's making the requirements of us. He is a holy, righteous, just God. And he says, here, my people, are my requirements. Stop trying to guess. Get rid of your own righteous ideas. And hear what I have to say... I am a just God. Therefore, make it a pattern in your life to do justly. Stop cheating people. Tell the truth. Lying lips are a what? An abomination to the Lord. Be honest in your business practices. These were things that were happening among God's people in the day of Micah. Because God is just, you... Act justly. He says, I am a merciful God. And so therefore make it a pattern in your life to love mercy. See people through the lens of your loving heavenly father. Blessed are the merciful. They shall be shown mercy. Jesus was coming to rule and reign in righteousness. In Philippians 2 pictures the incarnate Christ walking humbly with his Father. The pattern of Jesus was to operate in a spirit of humility, also doing and practicing the things of the Father. Humility, church, humility is the most treasured characteristic of the child of God. It opens the door to what? God's grace. And as Jesus is humble and holy, so too the people of God are called to imitate that. Walk humbly with your God. Think of others. Practice honoring one another. Be hospitable. Take up the towel and basin. Serve one another. Most of all, live and operate with the mind of Christ, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In light of all that's going wrong around, around Micah and his day, in light of the sins of his people encompassing, enveloping him, he responds, I believe, in similar fashion, to Habakkuk. and we see this in chapter seven verse seven. This conclusion that he draws here, he says, "Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will look to the Lord, I will wait." For the God of my salvation. I love this last part. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. Church, that's faith. He understands that in living this way that's been prescribed by the Lord, the Lord will hear him. And he's going to wait. He's going to look. Reminds me of Hebrews 2. Looking unto Jesus, Micah is going to look unto the Lord and he's going to wait for the salvation of his God. Thanks be to God that we can trust this God of the scriptures, this Lord of history. Amen. We can trust him. Thanks be to God for his goodness, for his justice. And he will one day, it may seem like a mess now, but one day he is going to set things right, church. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. Mercy by which we are saved, Titus chapter 3 tells us. Thanks be to God for the pattern and the example of Jesus, who for us is the picture of what it means to walk humbly with God. You know the name Micah. Has in mind this idea of, who is a God like you? You know it's interesting is to read through the prophets, their names, and how their names actually come out in the context, oftentimes of the letter, the prophecy. Here we see Micah, a shortened version of Micaiah. Who is a God like you? I'd like to conclude by just pointing and looking. At the end of Micah, verse 18, chapter 7. Notice what he says. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger Forever. Praise God. Because, here's why because He delights, He delights in mercy. This God who has called us to love mercy, we need to know and understand He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And you know what, this next next word right here is for some who perhaps are here this morning and you're weighed down by, just bogged down completely by stuff going on in your life. Sins, maybe snares, these these sins that are easily ensnaring you. I'd like to just encourage you this morning, if that's where you find yourself, listen to who this God we serve is. He says, you, Micah says, you will cast all our sins, all of them, all of them. Now cast them all. Into the depths of the sea. And you know, some time removed from when Micah wrote in 700s BC, about 700 plus, give or take years later, there was going to be one who was going to come. And he was going to make certain that these sins were going to be cast into the depths of the sea. And church, you know that, how that happened. It happened through what Christ did at the cross. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ that Micah, the prophet, can prophesy and he can say all of our sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. Church, that's the only way they're cast into the depths of the sea. It's through the cross. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord has summoned his people. The Lord has given his testimony. And the Lord has also put forth his requirements for his people in Micah's day and in our day. How yet to live. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly just like Jesus did with his father. All our days, Those are his requirements. And so if those are the requirements of our Lord, I pray that we would hear this day what the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we thank you that you speak, that we are responders to what you say. As your people... May we not give you lip service, but may we instead walk by faith, trusting in who you are, looking into the history of how you have operated, how you have dealt with your people, how you have been so good to your people, how you have been just, and how you have operated in mercy and compassion. Father, we thank you. Pray that we would lean and rely upon these wonderful promises that you've given to us. That you're not going anywhere. You've not left us. You've not forsaken us. You've not called us to carry out the mission in the meantime on our own. But you've even said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So Father, we take great hope that we have an anchor for the soul in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the Righteous One. Thank You, Father, that we have an advocate before You who is pleading our case yet today. May we all be reminded of that. What a gracious and loving God we serve through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for the truth You've given to us this day. May we walk in this truth, I pray, in the name of Jesus, amen.